This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. So today we have Dr. Michael McNett. He is the systems director for the Aurora Non-Interventional Pain Program. He's also the chair of the Wisconsin State Medical Society's Opioid Task Force, and we're on that task force together. And we're going to be talking about what people should be expecting regarding narcotic treatment, pain management, et cetera. So Dr. McNett, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do so. Thank you for inviting me. And just a little bit more background. So really, the purpose of the task force is what? Well, it's to ensure that um, doctors are prescribing opioids responsibly, that they're made aware of the information, uh, the literature that's out and available regarding uh, effective opioid prescribing and what is not probably warranted, the toxicities that opioids have, and, and how to be careful about watching for when patients may be developing problems with their opioids and how to address that. So currently, it's been declared there's an opioid crisis. However, there are also a fair number, a large number of people who have been on narcotics for a long period of time. And let's say Mr. and Mrs. Smith come in, are seeing you, and there are a lot of physicians right now that are saying there are too many regulations. It's very burdensome. There's all sorts of risks associated with it. And a lot of physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician's assistants are saying we are no longer prescribing narcotics, period. That's a problem because you know there are a lot of people who are on opioids who don't have any evidence that they have addiction or problems with their opioids. I will say that the data on opioid effectiveness is, is very weak. Most of the meta-analyses that have been done, and that's, for those who don't know, that's where a, a researcher takes all the good quality studies that have been done on a given treatment and combines them together into one large study and analyzes that. And the results of that tend to be very, very predictive of how a person will respond to that treatment. So uh, meta-analyses basically define healthcare. um, And there have been three different meta-analyses showing that when you give opioids to a person for longer than a couple of months, they're not really very effective. Um, In fact, they're not even perceptibly effective. The reason for that appears to be because the Opioids work by attaching to a protein in pain nerves uh, that sits on the surface of the pain nerve. And when the narcotic binds to that, that protein affects the pain nerve to cause it to quiet down so it doesn't send as many signals to the brain. The problem is that as you continue taking opioids, they actually cause the protein to change its shape. And so the new protein now has the exact opposite effect. Instead of quieting down the pain nerve, it actually irritates it and causes it to become more sensitive. And so the longer persons on opioids, the less effective they tend to be. And if they stay on, um, once they lose their effect, they may actually start making the pain worse instead of better. So opioids aren't a great treatment for chronic pain. On the other hand, when you've a person has been on them for a long time, if they seem to be working and if the patient seems to be not having problems, it's reasonable to allow them to remain on those opioids. There are a couple problems with it, however. One is that a study has recently come out that shows that even if a person doesn't have addiction or overdose or anything like that, the annualized risk 
of a person dying of a heart attack or heart-related problem is increased 65% over people who aren't on opioids. And that's a huge problem. I'm 65% increase in heart deaths per year over people not taking opioids is is pretty compelling. And and, and there are other problems as well. Pregnant women uh, tend to have their babies often uh, have more heart, 270% increase, so almost three-time increase in various heart abnormalities, born with water on the brain, spinal cord not fusing, or the spinal column not fusing, or born with their intestines outside of their body, which has a 30% death rate. So uh, a woman who's planning to get uh, pregnant really shouldn't be taking opioids. And then um, for men, uh, they also significantly reduce testosterone levels, which tends to cause their muscles to get weak and reduces their endurance. So there are a lot of problems with being on opioids. And I think it would be always be best if there was a way we could find to help people get off of them. But but if we're going to do that, we need to do that responsibly. Uh, we, we can't just give a person a pres- prescription and say, go find somebody else to prescribe your narcotics from now on. Because unfortunately, a lot of times what happens is there is nobody. That person can't find another person to prescribe their narcotic and they go into withdrawal. And unfortunately, a lot of people, when that happens, turn in desperation. They, they find somebody they can buy some narcotics from, uh, you know, not a doctor. And then that may lead them to harder and harder drugs and ultimately heroin. And unfortunately, a lot of of those patients then wind up dying and it's it's not and that could all be avoided by just helping the person get off the opioids and especially what we want to do is try to find non-narcotic treatments because there are a lot of non-narcotic treatments that have been shown to be quite effective Uh, there are certain medicines that quiet down the pain nerves so they don't send as many signals to the brain there are medicines that help the brain release chemicals that block pain so not as much gets through some medicines reduce irritation and inflammation and help pain that way tylenol is actually pretty strong as as a pain medicine and so people should be taking regular doses of tylenol but not more than 3,000 milligrams a day your liver appears to be able to handle up to that much but if it turns out that a person is showing signs of problems with their narcotics or, or if a person really wants to get off and is willing to try to wean off, the way to do that is to cut the dose slowly, usually over 10 to 20 weeks. Typically, that won't cause any withdrawal. But that will allow the person to get off the opioids without having any side effects from it. And oftentimes, I've actually found that people who are on even enormous doses of opioids, their pain doesn't get worse. And as I said, the studies often show that it's not that effective when given long-term. I once saw a person who was taking 20 pills of 200 milligram morphine. So they were on 4,000 milligrams of morphine a day. Their pain was two out of 10. We weaned them over about eight months. And at the end of that time, their pain was three out of 10. And they were completely off the narcotics. It's it's interesting because I'm a pain physician. I prescribe. I do non-narcotic and interventional pain management, and it's it's shocking to see people who really thought that they needed a pain pill every day or multiple pain pills every day, and when they come off their pain pills, actually their mood is better and their pain is is also better. Yeah, it's it's remarkable, and I think it's because that protein goes from making the pain nerve less sensitive to making it more sensitive. There's a, the medical term for that is opioid hyperalgesia. I think it's far more common than we realize. The, the other factor that's a big factor in this is that a lot of people have been trained to think their opioids work by the opioids themselves. There is no chemical known to man that acts on an area of the brain called the reward center more potently than opioids do. And so if you think, I'm in pain, I need to take this pill, and you take an opioid, 
particularly if you're a person who's really sensitive to that effect. And some people are very sensitive to it. Some people are not sensitive to it. And some people are kind of in between. And so if you take that opioid, if you think I'm in pain, I need to take this pill and you take an opioid, it stimulates the reward center, which then intensely causes a motivation to, to do the same thing, which is thinking I'm in pain, I need to take this pill. So you're, it's like training a dog and giving them a doggy biscuit when they roll over. This is actually training a human and giving them something much, much, much more potent than a doggy biscuit. Every time they think I'm in pain, I have to take this pill. And, and so people are, are, you know, they absolutely believe this, but then when they get off, they're like shocked that, that the pain isn't that much worse. Now, if, if that problem is out of control, then they've developed, you know, what we call opioid use disorder or uh, what was used to be called addiction, but it can be mild, moderate, or severe. It can be, some people have a mild form of it, but they just keep thinking, I have to have this, I have to have this, even though I look at them and their, their pain scores are no worse than they used to be, but they're adamant they have to have that medicine. And that's probably a sign that the reward effect has kicked in on them. And the brain physiology, I think, is really interesting. For example, if like I can have one or two drinks and then I stop because I, I lack an enzyme, aldehyde dehydrogenase. So actually, I get flushed and I, I don't feel well if I have more than one or two drinks. I had, it's too bad we can't gene splice that into everybody. No. <laughs> no. Um, or I had my appendix out and I was given, I think it was Vicodin or Percocet a few years ago. I took one and I, like, I did not like the way it made me feel at all. So I, I just didn't take them. On the flip side of that, because there's always variation among people, I have friends who, if they have one drink, they can't stop. But if they don't drink at all, right. they're fine. But one drink will just set them off. Yeah. And people yeah, are just the, built differently. They are. If you give uh, opioids to 100 people, probably 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, as they get better, they'll just stop taking the opioids because they aren't that sensitive to this reward effect. About one out of 100 will become addicted. And the, the current incidence of opioid use disorder is about uh, 0.9%. So it, it's about just a little under 1% of the population, adult population in the United States does have opioid addiction right now. And there are a lot of people that might have it, but have not been exposed. Uh, they've just never had to take an opioid. And so that's, that's good <laughs> because if, if we can keep them from being exposed, we keep them from possibly developing from. But I think there are a lot of people who are sort of in between and just have this reward effect causing them to feel like they need to keep taking their opioids. They're not cycling out of control. They take it as it's prescribed, but they just really feel like they have to have it, even though we, the studies have shown that it really doesn't help pain perceptibly once you've been on it for a couple months or more. You know, I, I think it used to be felt that if a person's on opioids and they're stable and everything's, they don't show any evidence of problem, well, there's no reason to take them off. Well, now that this new study has come out, and it was a large-scale study that looked at people on opioids and found that there was a 65% increase in death rate from cardiac disease every year compared to somebody not on opioids, that's a pretty compelling reason to try to work with people to get off of opioids. We don't want people dying of heart attacks because they're on a pill that doesn't work very well. <laughs> and so, so what, what I'm trying to do is help people utilize non-narcotic treatments to the absolute maximum extent possible. And that can include medicines. Uh, it can include interventional treatments, which can, in, uh, particularly in some people, can be dramatically effective. And then um, utilizing physical therapy, self-care, maybe uh, acupuncture or other integrative medicine type techniques. And pain psychology, I think, is really underused because it's interesting. People can, who are good hypnotic subjects can actually go through surgery without any anesthesia 
and they don't feel any pain if they're under hypnosis. So what that shows us is that if people could only really muster the power of their brain, they could completely block almost any pain. And the problem is most people don't know how. And so they need a trainer to kind of teach them how. And I think that's a great role for pain psychology is to help people learn how to use the power of their brain to block their pain. And they can dramatically reduce it. Uh, I remember when I was working ER in central Illinois about 15 years ago, I had a farmer uh, who had gotten his hand caught in a grain auger, which is like a screw inside of a tube that carries grain up to up into the bins. And uh, it had sliced his hand off except for a little piece of skin on the pinky side. And he's sitting there talking to me about this auger and how it has given him nothing but trouble his whole ever since he bought it. And I'm watching as he's bleeding <laughs> and a puddle of blood was forming between his shoes on the floor. And I, I finally said, that's got to hurt. And he looks down at it and he goes, yeah, I guess. And he looks back at me and goes, you know what? You know what? And I said, what? He said, I should have gotten an international harvester. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, by thinking about the, the auger, he was keeping himself from feeling the pain because he'd learned how to do that. It's, it's funny because there's physical pain, like arm trauma, but emotional pain and spiritual pain, I think, are sometimes just as real. I think a lot of people yes. sometimes use nar narcotics or other substances if they lack meaning in their lives. Also, if, say, someone has emotional pain, say, like their significant other passes, you can actually see real changes on imaging of the heart. And that's why often if one person dies, their significant other will die shortly after. Yeah, I think that's true. And and I practiced, I started off in primary care for about eight years. I practiced that. And I had patients come into the hospital who really had no good reason to be seriously ill. They were very healthy. They had no major problems with diabetes or hypertension or heart disease or anything else. And they, they might come in with a little pneumonia and I'd start treating them and then their kidneys would shut down even though we had done nothing that would have hurt their kidneys. And so then we tried to treat that and then, then they'd have a heart attack. And, and it's just like, I just watched as their body just stopped working. And oftentimes these were people who had lost maybe the last surviving member of their family and were alone or who had their, their wife had died. It's just like, it's like they gave up the ghost and their body just failed. And that really can happen. And I do think, you know, it is, it is true that opioids treat emotional pain the way they treat physical pain. And suddenly, if you've got a, if you're dealing with a horrible emotional trauma, let's say somebody who's been sexually abused and they carry this enormous trauma in their, their heart, suddenly having that disappear is intensely rewarding. It's like a shot of heroin as far as the reward system goes. That intense reward of having that go away can add to the reward that the opioids give themselves and make that person particularly vulnerable. And it's interesting because to dovetail off what you were just saying is that I did a lot of my training in a cancer center and you could almost see when some people would just say, I'm done, I don't want to do this anymore. And then the disease would rapidly progress. But if someone mentally wanted to fight and, and do everything they could, those patients always tended to do much better. Yes, I, I think our brain has far more control over our bodies than I think we generally believe. <laughs> it's, it is remarkable how much of an impact um, being a fighter has on, on outcomes of illnesses. Uh, on the other hand, when people have just kind of given up, uh, it's remarkable how often we see problems. It, it's been found, for example, that if there's a stress monitor that came out, I, I took it back in the 80s one time just on a lark, and they found that if you have 
people who are under very high levels of stress have a dramatically increased risk of uh, major illness or accidents. It's like 20 times higher uh, risk of major illness or accident in the one to two years after that stress starts, whether that death of a spouse, being fired from a job, you know, losing um, major financial losses, things like that. Uh, it is remarkable the extent to which these things can impact our bodies in ways that medical science just can't even explain. Well, I think stress is an interesting thing because if you're in pain, obviously you're going to have stress and pain, but I think it's people's reaction to it. I've seen people because I worked with the VA system as well, and I'd talk to veterans who would be in incredibly stressful situations, but they would say that's just par for the course, and they'll, they'll go into combat and be relatively calm, whereas other mm-hmm. people, if their tire goes out, it, they have a meltdown. And, and in fact, when, when you are stressed, there's a part of your nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system that kicks in, and the more you are sort of allowing yourself to get caught up in that stress, the worse the sympathetic activity becomes. And the sympathetic system directly influences the pain system. That's why there's even a a disease called reflex sympathetic dystrophy, or that's what it used to be called. It's now got a more complex name. But um, it's where the sympathetic system has just gone haywire, and it causes excruciating pain in the body part. It can be caused by something as innocent as a twisted ankle. So, So when a person is really stressed out, they're activating their pain systems and they're actually having more pain go to the brain. And then they're also less, um, they feel less capable of coping with it. And it can actually lead to a, a condition called catastrophizing where people look at a situation and then imagine it to be much worse than it actually is and then experience the experience of being in that much worse situation. There's a a thing that is commonly used in pain medicine called a catastrophizing index. And when patients test high for this, if they go to see a, a therapist who helps them learn how to better manage their pain and not get you know, I always like to say it's really important that you have your pain and that your pain doesn't have you. And in people where they've they've sort of let their pain get control of them, they do much, much worse. And so having a therapist help you get back, get your feet underneath you again and kind of get you back in control of your life so that you have your pain and it's not in control of you, it it actually causes the pain to become much better. So clearly the mental approach is really important. And then I think physical therapy, I've seen people do dramatically better with the appropriate physical therapist. Yeah, I think that's great. I think physical therapy is a big thing. I think chiropractic can be helpful for a lot of people. And then one of the most commonly overlooked sources of pain, in my estimation, is myofascial uh, pain, which is where you get these tight knots in the muscles. Part of the problem with pain is that anywhere you have pain, we have a reflex that tends to cause our muscles around that area to tighten up. Uh, This is left over from when we were living in the jungles. And if we were in pain, it meant we were bleeding. and, And so we tightened up our muscles to stop the bleeding. But most people in modern society aren't bleeding from pain, so it's not good for them to have that. But the problem with it is that when you get those muscles to tighten up, then you get little tears in the muscle fiber that cause spastic knots to form. And then those spastic knots, become painful themselves. And not only where they're located, but they'll send pain off to other areas around them called referral. And I've actually seen patients with knee arthritis who, if they got their those knots around their joint, the knees treated in the muscles, it turned out that was the large majority of the pain they were actually having had been from the, the knots that had formed in the muscles around it. And people can easily, uh, you can get trigger point injections to help that, but they work m- far better if people are working on themselves on a regular basis two or three times a day and they're 
there are ways that you can do that uh, that can be very helpful for that kind of pain. So, you know, it's interesting because a lot of pain patients get depressed and they say that depression is a result of an unacceptable situation with no hope of getting out of it, where you feel powerless to, to affect it. I think that doing things like physical therapy and the myofascial self-treatments and taking care of yourself, doing regular exercise and stretches and things, starts. it gives a person the ability to do something about their own pain so that they don't feel like they're the powerless victim over it, but that they actually have some control over how much pain they have. And I think that goes a long way toward preventing people from getting depressed about the situation they're in. So what would be then your thoughts on, because I think this happens very, very commonly, you have someone who is in chronic pain, they're on some sort of narcotic for a long time, and they come in, and from their point of view, they're, they're, gonna, they're going to tell you, I take a pill in the morning, a pill in the afternoon, a pill at night, or a couple of pills in between, and I need this to function. They go to their doctor or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, and they say, I need you to discontinue it. And the healthcare provider then says, well, this is, these are what the studies show, and I don't think it's good for you. And they say, no, this is what I need. And then the healthcare provider says, because this is a very common situation. Then the, the patient says, nope, I don't want anything else. I don't want to do physical therapy. I don't want to do pain psychology, physical therapy. I don't want to see a, see a pain physician. I just need you to re refill my medication. Yeah, that, when I hear that, I start worrying about the patient and the fact that the reward of the opioids may have a have gotten its claws into them. Because people who are in pain, you know, when I'm in pain, I'll tell you, if you told me I could jump up and down on one leg and cluck like a chicken, I would, I would ask what leg, <laughs> you know, it's like, because I would want to get better by any means I can. Pain is a horrible experience. And if you're in pain, I would expect that a patient would want to get better any way I could help them. And if I explain to a person that taking this medicine could give you an, a 65% increase in the risk of dying from a heart problem in the, any given year, I would expect that, you know, the rational thing to do is say, well, is there some way that I can get on something safer? And when a patient says, absolutely not, I want this and nothing else, what I hear is a person who isn't being rational, and that means that something has gone haywire, that the, the opioids are affecting them in a way that isn't good for them. You know, nobody should be so tied to any treatment that they would tolerate a 65% increase in possible death by heart attack instead of just switching to a different treatment. That doesn't make sense to me. So when I hear that, then I, I really become concerned. Uh, and I think we really need to get you off of these because the longer you're on these, the worse this problem is going to get, the more you're going to need. And I'm just really concerned about that. And I would try to work with that person to find an alternative that they could take and that would, that would help them get off of it. One of the things I used to use a long time ago is buprenorphine. It's also called Suboxone. It's actually used to treat opioid addiction, but it is an opioid. It does help pain, but it doesn't cause very much reward at all. And so by getting a person like that on the buprenorphine and having them on it for a while, it's, it's treating their pain, but it's not giving them that extra kind of you know, opioids are like pain relief with benefits. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, they're, they're doing something for a patient that is a reward. And, you know, it's funny because when you give a, a patient an opioid for pain, that opioid rewards them for thinking they're in pain and they need to take the pill. What we're trying to do is get them to think they're not in pain and, and help them reach a point where they're not in pain. So we don't want to give them medicines that reward them 
for thinking I'm in pain, I have to take this pill. So what I found is that by switching them to other opioids that have far less reward, after a while, they kind of get used to not having that reward. And they start realizing that this medicine isn't helping them nearly as much as they used to think. And they become a lot more uh, open to the idea of going on to something else. You know, and like I say, before I found out about that heart attack risk, I used to just say, okay, you know, we'll continue you on this. But now I think it's far more important for us to try to find safer medicines for people. Now, the, the counter argument or the, the other side of this is <clears throat> what if someone, say, is end of life and they have a very painful condition and it's understood they are dying, like they have severe rheumatoid arthritis, arthritis, or they have terrible bone pain from cancer. Or I had another interview with a doctor who was the chair of the sickle cell program. And I think, unfortunately, that population got left out of the guidelines. But their studies show that narcotics, when they're having a sickle crisis, definitely help those people. Yeah, they do. The problem with sickle is that, first of all, uh, a lot of sickle patients have come into emergency rooms and they receive uh, hydromorphone, also known as Dilaudid. Heroin addicts like Dilaudid better than heroin. So what happened, you know, addiction is a combination of a vulnerable person being exposed to an addicting substance. And it's kind of like lighting a fire. You know, if if the wood is really, really super dry, any kind of fire will activate it, like a, a dropped cigarette butt. But if wood is like wet, it takes a lot more. You can still ignite it if you've got a butane torch or something like that. Well, the problem is that Dilaudid is a butane torch. And so a lot of people who may not have otherwise gotten addicted if they use something like you know, morphine or, or other types of medicine. You know, I'm a big advocate for if a person isn't on narcotics all the time, there are drugs that are as strong as like morphine IV, but, but have far less addiction. The Nubane is one of them. They're, semi, they're called semi-synthetic opioids. Uh, Nubane and Stadol are two pretty widely used ones and very, very low risk of addiction. So if a person comes in and, and has a, a crisis like that, yes, we need to give them the pain uh, relief they need, but we also need to give it with the absolute safest medicines we can because particularly with sickle cell, if a person starts getting addicted and they present to your ER, there is no way that you as an ER doctor know that they can show whether they're in a sickle crisis or not. So basically, they can walk into an ER anytime they want and say, I'm having a sickle crisis and they'll get they'll get medicines. It's really a dangerous situation because if they are getting addicted, it's very hard to tell. And, and sometimes they'll get very far down the road of addiction before somebody starts to realize this is what's going on with them. So if, if we use drugs like Stadol and Nubane, when they have their crises and then use, there are drugs that can be given to them to help prevent them from having crises and get them into a sickle program that can keep them under better management, then they don't wind up getting exposed to these highly addictive opioids nearly as much. If they need it, they need it. I, I totally understand that. And I, it, would, it would be inhumane to deny them pain relief. I, I think the key is to make sure that what we're giving them is as safe as possible. And then use non-narcotics too. You know, there's, there's a whole area in medicine now called enhanced recovery protocols or preemptive analgesia, where they're really focusing when people have surgeries that are pain, that result in a lot of pain, they're giving them these protocols now where they're giving them non-narcotic medicines before they even have the operation, uh, drugs like gabapentin, drugs like in the ibuprofen family, there's one called Celebrex that doesn't increase bleeding so that if you're having surgery, it's safe to use. Other, other medicines like this, Tylenol. Uh, and what they're finding is that people are coming out of those surgeries feeling much better, having far less pain and getting into re- uh, rehab and walking sooner and everything because these medicines work really well 
actually better in some cases than narcotics do. There's a group called the Cochrane Collaboration, which is a uh, group that studies, they do these meta-analyses I was talking about earlier. And when the Cochrane Collaboration makes a decision about a treatment, it's kind of like God handed it down on clay tablets from on high. And they've actually identified that if you take an Advil and an extra strength Tylenol after surgery, it's three times as likely to cut your pain in half as the oxycodone in three Percocet. And so I think that we've been laboring under a misunderstanding about how effective opioids really are. And if we are going to be using an opioid, for example, in a sickle patient, we should be using these other medicines too. And what we'll probably find is we'll get them feeling far better and need far less narcotic to do it. I I 100% agree with you on all points. I think because I do interventional pain, I think what I think is difficult for, well, what's difficult for me is the interventional pain field has advanced very quickly in the last five years. And if someone has, say, just knee pain, I actually had a patient who had knee pain and they went to their primary care doctor and I discussed this procedure where I can put the nerves to sleep that are causing pain in the knee. It's just needles going in and it puts the the nerves to sleep. So it's a very safe procedure. And they went to the primary care doctor and the doctor said, I've never heard of that procedure, so I don't think you should do it. So they waited for six months or so. And then they kept seeing other patients I had who had great results. So then they ended up getting it. And then they came back to me and they did did really well. And they had about 90% pain relief from their knee and it allowed them to keep working. So all this person really wanted to do was keep working and they wanted to delay their knee surgery, which they needed, but they wanted to just finish working and then get the knee surgery when they're retired. And that's what this procedure allowed them to do. Um, They were kind of frustrated with, with their primary care doctor as to why they weren't educated. And my thought was, or my impression was that primary care doctors are dealing with a lot of guidelines they have to follow. They have all sorts of things they have to address. And the pain field is a whole different field. And I, from my my experience, there's a lack of appropriate referral to a pain clinic. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a problem because I think, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, I started off in primary care and I left it in like 1991 because I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. <laughs> you know, I, I have so much respect for those people because they can do something. I, I just found out I couldn't do. Um, they've got so many people expecting them to do so many different things. And there's just, they have enormous weight on their shoulders. They're run ragged and I, I feel tremendous respect for them. I do think that uh, it's, and, and this is one of the reasons why I have started a uh, non-interventional pain program in our organization, which is um, run primarily by uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants, where they come in and they actually get, before they start working for us, they get six weeks of training, a, a whole curriculum that has 60 credit hours of continuing education credit for going through this training. But it's a comprehensive overview of pain medicine, uh, including the the psychological aspects, the uh, addiction, um, and training in all of the different ways of providing pain management, including knowing when to refer people, uh, what are the criteria for referring somebody for different kinds of procedures like, you know, a steroid injection or a block of a nerve or something like that. And then we're, we're spreading this. We're in the process now of expanding this throughout the entire organization. Uh, and we have 2,200 doctors 
in our organization with about another thousand um, or 800 uh, nurse practitioners and PAs. And so we're going to be expanding this to make this available to that entire population of providers so that they have somebody that they can trust to just send their patients off and have them take care of them because pain is a difficult disease to treat. They, it, it operates according to a biopsychosocial model, which means that pain doesn't occur as just a biologic function. It also is works up its way up and is felt in the brain, and the nervous system has all kinds of influences on it as it's getting processed. So it can it can make the pain much worse than it would otherwise be. It can make it much better than it would otherwise be. Pain can the pain sensation is a sensation, but it can connect to the emotional centers and create misery. And some people are much more vulnerable to having that happen than other people are. And so there's so much that's going on in that that it's really Really important to know, and it occurs in a social environment. So, you know, when a person gets in pain, they can't work, they may stop uh, being the breadwinner for the family. That may cause resentment in their partner who is expecting that, and uh, they may become needy and and reach out to the partner who then tries to do their best, but eventually becomes burnt out and can't can't be constantly providing that support all the time. And gets frustrated, and and then that makes patient more upset, and so they feel more pain. So what this does is this provides people who have the time and the expertise necessary to really address all the aspects of that and help guide the patient into a process of really addressing those things so that their pain gets as good as possible. I think it would be a huge expectation to ask a a very, very busy primary care doctor to try to take all that on. I'm really proud of our program. I I think we're really providing a needed service. I think that's a. Gr- I think all hospital systems should have a standalone dedicated pain service for to coordinate really the care between physical therapy, pain psychology, and then assorted specialties. So here's here's actually a very specific example I had just a few months ago. There was this young lady who came into the office, and her primary care doctor saw her and said she's she has pain and she's just a little bit difficult. Can you see her? So we got her in really quickly, and younger mid twenties lady, stay-at-home mom, husband worked, but she was itching when she came in and she just said she was in pain all the time. And she just said, like, can you help me? I don't know what's going on. And after sitting with her for a while and really doing a really careful history, it turns out she was really flexible as a child and was very active as a child. And then she had just very stretchy skin. And then I made the diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which other people in her family have. And mast cell disorder often is present with Ellis-Danlos syndrome. So I, I gave her some antihistamines and the itching and the pain became dramatically better. Wow. I sent her to a therapist because this was interfering with her relationship with her husband. And then I set, referred her over to um, a support group and put her in appropriate physical therapy so she wouldn't hyperextend her limbs because that's what causes the pain to get worse going forward. So she learned to really be aware of where her body was in space. But I don't think she would have done as well if someone just said, well, here's some drugs and go about your day. Yeah. Have you ever used uh, prolotherapy in Ehlers Dental? I think it's great. I have not just because of the cost. Yeah. For those who don't know, a prolotherapy is uh, where you inject a, a particular kind of sugar compound or irritant into the um, tendons and ligaments, and it causes scarring, which causes them to get stronger and to shrink. And so for people who have who have recurring twisted ankles, for example, and now their ankles kind of unstable, doing that into the ligaments of the ankle can, can firm them up and help them bring them back to the shorter length that they used to have. But unfortunately, the studies that have been done on it have not been well done. And so insurances, insurance companies have not yet agreed to, to pay for it, which 
it's a problem. I, I think, you know, it's frustrating to me some of the things that insurance companies don't pay for. You know, I think that there are some really good treatments that are coming down the pike. And like there's one where you can actually do an ablation of the nerves inside of discs. There, there's also a new device that's coming out where you put a, a needle into the, the bone itself that ablates the nerves in the bone. And the outcome studies from that have been very, very good. Yeah. So, and, and these are the kind of things that can prevent a patient from having to have a back fusion. And, you know, I, I'm always astonished by insurance companies that will pay for back fusions, but won't pay for something like this, which would cost a 20th of the cost of a back. A person have to, you know, have 20 of these to make up for the price of one back surgery. <laughs> but I guess they just have really high expectations for how much, the, how many studies have to be done on something before they're willing to do that. But it, Payment is a major problem for a lot of treatments. There's a treatment, uh, I don't know if you do this, uh, where they infuse ketamine. They give IV ketamine, which is a drug that blocks the protein in the nerve that allows in calcium to cause the nerve to become hypersensitive to pain. And that treatment can be very effective for a lot of pain conditions, but it costs between $7,500 and $1,200, I'm sorry, $12,000 for a course of treatment. And so a lot of patients just can't afford that. So I'm actually looking to set up a ketamine infusion program, but I, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to do it at no payment to myself. So that way it, sh- it should be very affordable. It shouldn't be anywhere near the cost that you are um, quoting. Ah, yeah, we actually have, a, we've developed a sublingual ketamine program and we're, we have a compound into like they're sort of like gummy bears and people put it under their tongue uh, and they gradually titrate themselves up on it over a month in very little increments so that it doesn't cause a lot of the side effects that ketamine can cause. And then they stay on it for a month once they reach their highest tolerated dose. And, and it, it only costs $144. It's interesting that oral ketamine isn't more frequently used because from my understanding, it's not very addictive and it doesn't have the respiratory depression issues of narcotics. Yeah, I think people are concerned about side effects, uh, but and oral is it's kind of a problem because it's eighty percent. You know, when you swallow it, the liver converts eighty percent of it to a metabolite, and so people only get it. You know, twenty percent of the active compound. We're we're doing it sublingually, so they get more of it. So it's absorbed through the lining of the mouth, and it doesn't go through the liver that way. Yeah, we've we've had some real, really dramatic successes with it, and people who are just miserable. And I think it's a it's a medicine that's uh, coming into its own. They're using it now more for depression, I think, as well. They're finding it's helpful for depression. In some cases of atypical depression that don't respond to normal neuro antidepressants, it it appears that ketamine can work quite well for some of those too. So it's um, a lot of a lot of interesting stuff on the horizon. It's funny that you talk about outcome studies because the outcomes for spine fusion surgery, even with the best surgeon, are not fantastic. Like if someone just has low back pain, the outcome studies for spine surgery are not very good. No, no, they're not. And well, and then then you get a domino effect because, you know, if it's usually the bottom vertebra, the bottom disc that wears out first because it has it has all the pressure on it. You know, it's carrying the pressure of uh, all the discs above it. <laughs> and um, so the bottom disc tends to wear out first and it's only doing its own job. You know, it's just doing what it's supposed to do. When you fuse it, now the disc above it has to do its job and the job that was being done by the disc below. So it tends to wear out faster. You fuse it, now the disc above that is doing its job in the two below. <laughs> and so you, you tend, you know, even if the spine surgery does help, what you find is that the discs 
uh, right next to where the surgery were done, then wear out that much faster because of the surgery. And so it doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of you know long term sense. And I think if we can find ways of you know, there are these procedures now that are coming along. Uh, unfortunately, they're not yet paid by insurance, but hopefully they will be soon where instead of taking out the disc, you just make the disc numb and all the disc pain goes away and people are fine until the nerve grows back. And hopefully we'll find ways of keeping that from happening with these new uh, infusions of uh, nerve growth, growth factor antibodies. We may be able to help delay that process too. Oh, sure. Um, so time will tell. <laughs> I, I, I think anyone who is in chronic pain should be very hopeful of the future. There's a lot of very exciting, very high efficacy um, things coming out, but I want to be very respectful of your time. So do you have any closing thoughts or like a driving message to physicians and then to people who have chronic pain? Well, one thing I would say is for the people with chronic pain, don't let opioids convince you that they're working better than they are, you start feeling like nothing works but an opioid, that's reason to be concerned and that the opioids may be affecting your brain in a way that's training you to want them. There are a lot of treatments out there that are much safer than opioids and are much, much more effective than opioids. Uh, and and be open to trying those and, and look for non-narcotic ways that will help you get off the narcotics because you don't want to have that, that 65% increase in heart risk. On the other hand, to people who are treating patients, please don't just give your patient a month's worth of a narcotic prescription and say, find somebody else to do it, or don't just cut them off and expect things to go fine. You're, you're setting up a person like that who is going to go through with, you know, oftentimes they'll go through narcotic withdrawal. They'll become desperate for something to make it better. And too often that leads them to find narcotics in ways that are going to lead them down a path to disaster. So it's irresponsible not to help a patient find alternatives and gradually decline, reduce their opioids if you want to do that. It's, you know, if the patient is willing to accept a 65% increase, I think it's important to have a conversation with them, but that, that that's not a grounds for terminating their narcotics summarily. Thank and you for listening. Either. If you enjoyed this podcast, so we need to, please we subscribe need to be and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. Realize that we are always looking for feedback pain, and new story ideas. And Thanks again, if and see you next time. Some con- if we are concerned about their opioids, we have to approach that with compassion and not just you know, find a way to, you know, get them out of the office. Here's a prescription. Don't come back. That's, that's not the right way to go. Dr. Mendez, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Take care.